the teaching ministry of Judah Olorimaye, a man called of God to compel consecration, provoke repentance, and inspire worship by the preaching and teaching of God's word and the miraculous demonstration of God's power. God's word is about to hit you as life and strength. Get ready for an encounter with grace. Christianity in the age of enlightenment. The age of enlightenment is, let's just say, 1700, 1700 to um, late 1800s, thereabouts. But what we are going to be discussing will be mostly 1700. So that's what we are calling the age of enlightenment. It's also called the age of reason. Everybody say reason. All right. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we trust that as this conversation happens, you would inspire our hearts. You would help us to see instructions, corrections, and encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Christianity in the age of enlightenment. Now, of course, after the Reformation, we all agree that the problems of the church did not end. <laughs> In fact, if anything, it seemed to become more complicated and more complex. Because many of the things that the Protestants and the Reformers were complaining about, things like the church and the states, the phrase states, like I've always said, means the government. The church and the government you know, working together to impose their own preferred religion. It's continued in the Protestant movement, especially after the fathers of Reformation um, left to be with God. People like Martin Luther and John Calvin used the Bible to ignite Reformation. But most of their followers began to use violence, sword, gra-gra, agidi. There were many forced conversions because I mean, the real purpose of the Reformation was to return people back to the Bible. But after a few years, people went back to this influence of using government authority to advance Christianity. And let me say this, in our generation, this will always be a temptation. To believe that what started in the spirit will be sustained by the flesh. It will never work. It will never work. To believe that what caused Jesus' blood, what caused the early apostles, their blood and their life, will now be powered by the energy of money and political connection. It will never work. Let us understand that from history, any time the church sided with the state to advance the cause of Christ, it always ended in a massive disgrace. It will never work because you have to compromise. The state... The government operates by different principles. The church operates with a different principle. Why you want to merge them? You will cause a commotion. But basically, by the time we got to the 1600, the 1700, some of the things that these reformers had been trying to fix still abounded in the church and in the body of Christ. However, many people were still ruled and controlled by Christian beliefs and church doctrines. Despite the divisions, we have Baptists, we have um, Anglicans, we had 
reformers. We had Roman Catholic. Many people in the world at that time were still governed by Christian beliefs and church doctrines. Let me also stress that one of the reasons why political powers were very in love with the church was because they used the teachings of the Bible to control people. For instance, in Romans 13 verse 1, the Bible says there, Paul writing, that everybody should be subject to higher powers because there is no power that be except from God. And so a wicked ruler, a wicked king will quote that scripture and say even the Bible says that there is no power that be except from God. And they will use that scripture to further their own selfish interests. One of the reasons, the, even if the church wanted to leave the influence of the government, the government still held on to the church because they were using religion to control people. Just like some, some politicians today will go to a church and say, Praise the Lord. Ah, he likes God. He likes church. I'll wait for him. Somebody will go and take a picture with a good man, with a pastor. Ah, he's stopping picture with a pope. I'll go and wait for him. All of those things were control mechanisms of the government of that time. It's still the same thing happening right now. So, the church and the state seem to be a marriage that will never experience divorce. The government was using biblical you know, instructions to control and to manipulate people. But there were many superstitions and false beliefs. Although many people claim to be Christian or loyal to the church and to the Bible, there were many superstitions and false beliefs. We told you about Martin Luther in his days. There was superstition about, or there were superstitions about the demons and the angels and Jesus working for, you know, God to send people to hell. And there were paintings that depicted that kind of a scenario. There were forests and rivers that were renowned for demonic influence and activity. And if you go there, something like that will happen to you and you'll be possessed and all that. It's still the same thing happening. There are rivers that, I mean, some people will say you must not swim inside. There are forests that people will say, ah, if you go to this forest, it's the headquarter of Satan and all of that. Now, we are not de denying demonic activity or satanic influences. But you can believe some things that are just superstitions. They're not true in entirety. And in Africa, this has injured civilization a lot. You can imagine there were times in a particular part of this country where twins were killed. Twins were seen as witches. You know, and much of the civilization and advancement that a community is supposed to experience can be, you know, hindered because of all these false beliefs. So false beliefs and superstitions were very prevalent. Let me also say that many people who practiced magic and, and worshipped idols also did collabo with Christianity. Just like we have people today who go and worship in Oshun River and say, we're all serving the same God. Ah, Oshun River, no be God make them. Ah, say Catholic, they do only Mary. We, they do Oshun River. Not the same thing. It was the same thing at that time. Many people were combining Christianity with magic and all of that. But at this time, the dominant doctrine of the church for many people who believed and associated with Christianity was what is called the doctrine of original sin. Everybody say original sin. What does this doctrine teach? This doctrine teaches that man is a sinner from conception. Adam's sin passed down to all of mankind. Man has no capacity to do good, to think good, to act good. Because man is inherently sinful. All have sinned 
and falling short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So, this doctrine of original sin was the central doctrinal belief amongst um, Christians in those days. Of course, this doctrine is still um, popular and I can say affirmative, depending on how you explain it. But in modern times, it's becoming a controversy. Some people believe that, well, man is born innocent and then subsequently by experience, man is corrupted. Some people believe that, no, according to scriptures, in iniquity did my mother conceive me. Once you are a human being, you are a sinner until you are born again. And all of those elements have sides of truth to it. Although I'm more of the side of original sin that teaches that because of Adam's sin, everybody from that lineage is automatically condemned to death. Everybody. Adam represented not just himself, but the entire human race. So when Adam and Eve sinned, the entire human race was condemned to death. The same way when Jesus Christ um, rose from the dead, everybody who believes in Jesus is, already, is also risen from the dead. Jesus represents a lineage. Adam represents a lineage. So that's the basic doctrine of original sin. But also, there were issues in society and the church with respect to submission to authority. The concept of authority was also a very popular doctrine or belief. The Roman Catholics were submitted to the papal office, the Pope. The Protestants were submitted to the authority of scriptures. But aside that, in the political climate, there were also controversies about submission to authority. In those days, democracy was, was not really popular. And so we had monarchs. We had people who ruled with um, everything that they had. There was no second opinion. There was no controversy about we object to what you are doing. There was no National Assembly or Senate to object to what a king or a president does. And so all of these issues were happening at the same time. The issue of submitting to church authority, biblical authority, or political authority. But of course, the common belief was that, well, the Bible teaches us to submit. So submission to authority was also widely accepted. Are we still together? But of course, as time began to unfold, people began to question the concept of submission to authority. There were many wars, many sicknesses in those days. Medical science was not advanced. So people were dying for nothing. A village would just go and fight another village. People would die. A king would just decide that he wants to take another territory. People would just die. And then in all of this, the church was still teaching, submit to, you must submit to. Just like we talk about submission in marriage today. Your husband is beating you, submit to. Your husband is slapping you, submit to. Submission was a very loud emphasis in those days. No matter how wicked the kings are, submit to. The Bible teaches us to submit to authority. That was how these political leaders were using scriptures to manipulate people. So people began to question. Another thing that made people question the issue of authority was that they were asking, how can the church be divided? We have the Roman Catholic Church. We have the Reformed Theologians. We have the Anabaptists. We have the, you know, several other movements like that. Who exactly are we supposed to submit to? Isn't the church supposed to be one? As people began to say, this issue of authority, is it even correct? Should we submit just because the Bible says we should submit to authority? People began to question the legitimacy of political authority, church authority, and even biblical authority. But beyond that, they had observed some of the shortcomings and some of the failures of the church, particularly with respect to intolerance towards others. 
When, remember that at this point in time, the printing press was very vital to the spread of information. And some people, of course, began to read the Bible on their own. Are we still together? Some people began to read the Bible on their own and noticed that, well, even this church that is talking about submission, they are not really practicing what the Bible teaches. And so, some of the excessive, extreme activities of the church began to cause a form of rebellion in the minds of people. Intolerance towards the other denomination. Roman Catholic, no, they greet Protestant. Protestant, they persecute Anabaptists. People were now saying, what is even all of this? The Bible doesn't teach anything like this. But there was a particular event that I want to use as an example to illustrate the extreme teachings and practices of the church with respect to intolerance. This event is called um, the Salem Witch Trials. Salem Witch Trials. Now, I said in the beginning that there were many people who believed in magic and practiced magic who still associated with the church. Is that not so? There were many people also who had some form of loyalty and commitment to idols who still were fraternizing, as it were, with the church. But this Salem witch trials actually was ignited on a ridiculous note. There was a particular woman who was always wearing black. And people began to say she's a witch because she's always wearing black. Once again, superstitions were much in those days. Last week I taught you how a woman who had a miscarriage was killed or was suspected to be a witch because they said anybody that has miscarriage is involved in sorcery and magic. That was the superstition. And so you just picked somebody up who was wearing black, like Sister Keji, who just sang for us, if they wear black, they sing, now witch. And this began to cause a massive witch hunt that led to about 50,000 people being killed on accusations, ridiculous accusations. Somebody can have a dream. I say, I saw her in my dream. She held a rope. She said, ah, she's a witch. She report to the authority. And they, without any proper evidence, they will start killing. 50,000 people were killed. Many of them women, some of them men. On baseless, ridiculous accusations. And it was the church that was sponsoring it and pioneering it. And it was a very ridiculous thing that the church you should know better. The church you should understand more. Of course, the truth is that in those days, there were certain weird things that people could not explain. A lady can just start manifesting or just start shouting. Some of those things were emotional issues. Some of them were mental issues. But they were always attributed to witchcraft. Just like today now, the single village, you see mama, the mama is old. She has lost all her front tooth. And when she smiled, maybe it was not looking like an Instagram picture. You know, she just this mama now witch. She's not a witch. She's just aged. She's just old. And in those days, that was the superstition. Everybody does not look good and look fine. You can say the person is a witch. Anybody that probably has a little awkward social, you know, relationship deficiency, you can say the person is a witch. Anybody perhaps had a birth defect or, you know, a physical deformity, you can say the person is a witch. 50,000 people killed. But this particular Salem witch trial, it stopped. Ask me why. In, in 1693, the wife of the governor was also accused of being a witch. So the governor said, my own wife, let's say this in a lie. When he got to his, the turn of his wife, 
he now began to say, maybe no be true. Maybe all these people will be killed. They no be witch too true. Because I know my wife, my wife no be witch. That was how this thing actually stopped. Until the wife of a leader was accused of this. Because then once you can accuse somebody, that's enough evidence. No other basis. They will carry the person, burn the person, kill the person, drown the person. So when they went to carry the governor's wife, my own wife. <laughs> yeah, I look good. And then subsequently it was stopped. In fact, the man had to issue an apology to all the people that had killed. He had to even declare them innocent. Who knows that had died? Say, I killed them, but from henceforth I declared them innocent. But then, that was a type of the cruelty and extreme intolerance that the church at that time displayed. And people began to say, even this church people self, they are claiming to know God, know Bible. Are there really people we should submit to? And so, in the minds of many people, a revolution began to sprout. So this eventually led to a logical and critical approach to life that brought about what we refer to as the age of enlightenment or the age of reason. People began to say, let's use our brain. They keep 50,000 people. They said, now, which, when they reach governor, wife turn. They said, no, be witch. Hey! Use your common sense, oh, church has come. Government has come. Politics has come. Submission to authority has lie. And so this thing began to spread during this period called the age of enlightenment or the age of reason. Now, the idea of enlightenment was basically to encourage individual reasoning and secularism. Individual reasoning. In those days, people don't think for themselves. What the church says is what we do. What the Pope says is what we do. What the government says, they were like zombies. People had no right to think by themselves. When I say people, I'm not saying everybody. There were a few people who were smarter than that. I said, ah, what are you guys talking about now? But then, the popular belief was just submit, just submit, just submit. And so, the age of enlightenment began to inspire critical thinking, an approach to life that was logical, and then secularism over spirituality. See, this got very similar to the time of the Renaissance, and the Renaissance actually overlapped into the age of enlightenment. This God, what would they talk about? What we never will see. You should say he real. You should say this God, don't be scam. This Bible, you should say no be woman, just write and put up together. Say now, word of God. People began to question the ideologies of the traditional beliefs of the church and began to rebel against the traditional setup of government authority. Are we still together? Let me quote an author who describes the concept of the age of reason. In a few words, he says, and I quote, the approved concept were reason, so the concept about enlightenment were reason, ronu, freedom. Let's be free from church control, from church authority, nature. They began to say, let's look at nature. If we want to get any revelation or any special enlightenment, it shouldn't come from Bible. Let's look at nature. Let's observe the grass. Let's observe the sun. Utility, happiness, right. Tolerance, deism, which I will soon explain, and then rational Christianity, science, autonomy, harmony, and optimism. Okay? They also objected to subjects such as authority, antiquity, tradition, church, revelation, the supernatural, 
and theological explanation. That's the end of the quote. So this summarizes the concept of the age of enlightenment. One of the major triggers of the enlightenment age is the advance in scientific breakthrough. Science played a prominent role in the age of enlightenment. Just like today, we have many people who claim to be atheists because of scientific innovations and scientific discoveries. In those days also, scientists that burst into the scene or that busted into the scene included Isaac Newton. Is that a popular name to you? Benjamin Franklin, Galileo Galilei, Blaise Pascal. If you didn't do science in school, you may be wondering, hey, what you lele? Say tongue, lele, be... These are wonderful scientists who actually contributed to scientific innovations and technological advancements in the age of enlightenment. These scientific discoveries made people think differently about the world and even God and man. For instance, the dominant belief system at that point in time was that the world, the earth, listen, planet earth was at the center of the universe or the center of our own galaxy. Like the entire planetary bodies revolved around the earth. The earth was central to existence. That was the belief of the Catholic Church. But many of the scientific discoveries exposed that that's not true. That the sun was actually what planet revolved around. And many times when scientists came up with their discovery, the Catholic Church would say, a lie. Who tell you this is a lie? And they will ban them. They will communicate them. They say, don't come to church. You are satanic people. This is a devilish doctrine. Even on science, the Catholic Church will not have no chill. They will just as communicating people. Anybody had a different opinion like this, they will say, ah, this is from the pit of hell. This revelation is not true. And all of that. That was the <laughs> attitude there. And so there was great intolerance. However, please know that many of the scientists were actually excellent Christians. In their own right. Isaac Newton was a Christian. I will tell you soon about um, Blaise Pascal who invented the calculator. Christian. Born again. Yeah. Maybe not tongue talking, but born again. Alright. People like Benjamin Franklin, who were also great of the American nation. I think he was the third president of the American nation. Scientists, also Christian to a large extent, believed in God. Alright. Galileo Galilei also. This one was the one that I think invented the. Is it telescope or what is it called? No, the one that sees planetary bodies. Telescope. Yeah. Galileo. They taught us in inter-science that time. Inter-science. How many of you remember that? How many of you did inter-science in school? That means you, were, you are old. Basic science is the young version. If you are young, you did basic science. It's inter-science, integrated science. No, no. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So people began to have, they say, okay, now that we have discovered that the sun is actually central to our universe, what if the Bible is a lie? Oh yeah. All the truths we have believed for the past 1,000 years have been proven by science to be false. What if all this that the is also saying is also false? People began to doubt, raise questions about the authority of the church and the authority of the states. Now, remember that the dominant theology at that time was the theology of original sin. And so, when the concept of enlightenment and reason became popular, 
people began to discard that doctrine. Because there was more focus on humanism and secularism instead of heaven and spirituality. People began to say, how would somebody look at a man as beautiful as they are and say that man is inherently sinful? How can you look at a little baby as cute as he is and say he's sinful? What do you do? Uh-uh. These church people are wicked people. And they are saying these things to control us. People began to reject the idea of the concept of original sin and the popular statement that actually expressed this new discovery is this. I quote, Reason is to the philosopher what grace is to the Christian. The dominant Christian doctrine was that you cannot do right without grace, without the influence of God. That's what grace is. Without God helping you. The philosophers, the enlightenment preachers began to say, you don't need God to do right. You are okay on your own. If you can use your common sense, you will do right. If you can use your ball, if you can run, you will do right. You don't need any grace. Which grace you need to think right, to do right, to say right? And so they began to say, reason is to the philosopher what grace is to the Christian. Grace causes the Christian to act. Reason causes the philosopher to act. They began to say, why are we talking about grace when we cannot use our brain? In fact, our brain is our grace. That was the idea in that time. Do you understand what I'm saying here? At first, many Christians attempted to harmonize both theories. The theories of reason and the theories of faith. Say, okay, since there's this concept of enlightenment and reason, let us merge the two of them together. They claim that there are certain truths that are revealed by research and logical observation and there are other truths that are revealed by supernatural revelation. But subsequently, down other generations, people now began to embrace the concept of reason more than the concept of faith. <laughs> you know, as I studied through this, I discovered that once again, there's nothing new under the sun. And there are many more Christians today who believe in only what they can see, touch, and feel than they believe in what the Word of God says or what they have not really felt from their natural senses. And so the next generation of Christians began to say, you be like, say, now logic and reason, we go believe instead of scripture and faith. The popular belief at that time in England was the concept of deism. D-E-I-S-M. Deism did not deny the existence of God. For the deist, God existed. But God existed as a clockmaker. Let me explain what I mean by clockmaker. God existed to the deist as somebody who created the clock. And the clock is working on its own without any interference from the person who created it. Do you understand that? When it's time for one o'clock, the clock will go there. One o'clock, it will continue. The person who made the clock does not have to tell the clock what to do. It has put it on autopilot mode. So the deists believe that God created the world, put it to run according to natural principles. God does not interfere into the world. Many people that are called Christians at that time, such as um, Benjamin Franklin, were actually Christians that believed in deism. They believed that, well, see, let's not involve God with politics. There are many days today. They say, ah, yeah, let's leave God another one. Ah, this is real life now. 
there are many people who don't believe in divine intervention. The deists does not believe in miracles. They believe that God sets the, the world to operate by natural principles that can never be broken. So, the deists had their own Bible. They believe that Jesus walking on water is a lie. Jesus cannot walk on water. They did not believe in the divinity of Christ. They believed Jesus could only be woman. They did not believe in the resurrection because it broke the natural law. How can the dead rise again? And so the days claim to be a Christian, but when we examine their beliefs and their teachings, we will see that, uh-uh. Because let me tell you this emphatically, you cannot be a Christian if you don't believe in miracles. You can't. The entire foundation of our Christian faith is built on miracles. That a virgin conceived a miracle. That Jesus was a miracle. And there are people today who say, no, I believe in doctrine. I believe in the word of God. But don't tell me about miracle. You, you, you don't believe God. Which God do you believe? A God who cannot work miracle? How did he save us? How did he rescue us from the people of hell? So, deism was very popular in England because it appealed to the senses, natural logic. How can somebody walk on water? How can you feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes? It does not make any sense, Joe. There are many days today denying charismatic operations. How do people just fall down under the anointing? Nobody touched them. They are pushing them, Joe. There's electric wire that they connected to the microphone that is making them fall down. Many days like that in our generation. There is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> so, deism does not deny or didn't deny the existence of God, but it denied his involvement in human activity. God was like a clock maker who lets the world run according to natural laws and principles. And by the way, that in a sense is correct. All the natural principles of night and day, yes, God set it in motion. God created the sun and the moon and the stars. And he said that he created it so that man will be orderly. Nights, day, months, years. So there is a truth in that. But that's not the whole truth. To now suggest that Joshua could not tell the sun to stand still. Because that defies natural logic. Moses couldn't tell the Red Sea to part. You see, that's why many of the false religions have element of truth. Before you accept, and maybe I will teach about false religions sometime, as God will give me all trans. There are many things that people practice that are not, there is no Christianity. For instance, Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. And I will, I will show you. You, you. you don't just say because somebody owns a book that looks like Bible, they are Christians. By the time you examine all their teachings, you know, say, uh-uh. ah. you don't believe in heaven. You don't believe that Jesus died. Okay? Then what is the basis of our salvation if Jesus did not die? Paul said, if Jesus did not die, and if he did not rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. Ah, what do you call the die for? What do they fight for? What do they live for? If Jesus did not rise from the dead. So, there are many false religions today who carry Christian tag. That's why, as a Christian, you cannot say, eh, I'm a Christian, but I don't like doctrine. Just let me go to church and serve God. You will be deceived. You must like doctrine. You must understand theology. There's nothing like a Christian who doesn't like theology. You just like praise and worship. You like prayer, but you don't like theology. You must understand theology. If not, you will fall into the trap of false religions and false movements. Are we still together? Yes, sir. Uh, the most popular um, deist of this era, of this time, is a man called Voltaire. That's a V-O-L-T-A-I-R-E. This is French. Voltaire. You can see, I think that's how it's pronounced. It was the most influential teacher and philosopher of this deist religion. 
a very intelligent man. His books are completed to about 15 million words. Always writing. Very smart man. Very intelligent. Very logical man. Very brilliant man. He was the most popular person of this deistic movement. And it is very crucial to understand that Voltaire represented a new order of Christian enmity. Previous agitations of the body of Christ came from within. You understand that? Martin Luther was a Christian. Um, John Knox, John Wycliffe, it was agitation from within. But Voltaire represented a new order of agitations from outside. People who were not Christians, who were criticizing the church. Who were saying the church is a scam, the church is nothing, the church is a lie. And Voltaire represented this unique voice of, you know, opposition from outside the body. He was leader of a group known as the Philosophers. But the way it's pronounced is the Philosophies. Because it's a philosopher and then P-H-E-S. That's actually the French word for philosopher. But the more known with that French name, Philosophies. Although they spoke well of Jesus, like other false religion does, they condemned the church because of the church's intolerance and insisted that the church was a distraction to progression. You know the people they call progressives today? Say so we are progressives. In the Western liberal world, they call them liberals. Say so we are the liberals. The woke generation. You know, and they felt, Voltaire felt that the church was an entrance to science and innovations and intelligent reasoning and that the church had converted everybody to zombies. Basically, they were saying that if the church was as good as they claimed, why did they support wars? Why were they so hateful towards opposition? And that they were not as holy and sacred as they claimed, but they were a wicked institution that prevented peace and progress. You can understand from last week's teachings for the church to be involved in a 30 year war. You know, Lutherians against Catholics, everybody fighting with sword, not fighting fight of faith, with sword. And they are Christians. They will do devotion before they go and kill somebody. You know, soldiers, look at the people that we talked about, Jesuits, who said they were soldiers for Christ. From the Society of Jesus, what's that man's name again? Loyola, Bikilongbe. And they were killing and doing a lot of terrible things in the name of defending the faith. And the Voltaire said, you guys are joking. How can you say you are a holy people, a good people, and this is what you are doing? Um, well, <laughs> the church in France, or in Darcy, they were not smart enough to understand that from history, nobody can defend the authority of scriptures or the authority of the church by using force. Or by using human force. So how did the church react? You can predict very poorly. They began to excommunicate and ban. And they began to collude with the government and say, make sure you ban their books. Voltaire's books must not be in this town. And all of that. But it did not work. People were already tired of all this banning and banning and banning and banning. Keep your banning to yourself. Who you're coming your help? Who you're... Who you help? I mean, leave us alone. We are not going to come to your church again. And so, it was a very terrible response from the church of France. But the church in England was smarter. <laughs> they knew that you don't fight falsehood with weapons of war. You go on the fight of faith. You teach the truth. You explain the truth. 
I can say this emphatically. There are many of our Christian leaders today who don't understand this principle. Somebody comes like Daddy Freeze or Mommy Ice Water and says that church is a scam, tithe is rubbish. You don't have to begin to say, I will curse you, I will curse you. Unnecessary. You open the Bible and you teach. You explain. Many people don't understand this thing. Somebody comes to look at you and say, you are wasting your time going to church. You don't get angry and going to say, I will swear for you. I will call that fire on here like Elijah. That's not the approach. You, it is by truth that you can defeat deception. And the church in France, they don't understand this. But we thank God for the church in England. People like Bishop Joseph Butler. Oh, this guy was a very smart man. He woke up to the challenge or rose up to the challenge and began to write to dissuade people from the arguments that suggest that reason and logic should be sovereign or should replace grace. One of the concepts of deism and enlightenment and logic and reason was that if you look at nature, everything is explained. All the laws is explained in nature. But by the time Bishop Joseph Butler began to analyze, he exposed this teaching by letting the world and the audience see that there were many things in nature at that time and even till now that cannot be explained. Let me tell you emphatically, science tries to suggest that they have answers to everything, but it's a lie. Science cannot have answers to everything. There are many things even in nature. Medical science does not even understand. How did it happen? We cannot really explain. People have talked about the Bing Bang theory. It was around this time also, or before this time, that Charles Darwin came up with his theory of evolution. How did man come? Man came from apes. Very ridiculous nonsense. How can you say that? You look me finished with all my glory, seeing my ape I come from. What nonsense talk is there? So, by the time Butler began to analyze the concept of reason and logic, he showed it that even nature does not explain everything. Now, Butler's case of argument was this. If you say we should discard religion, discard Christianity because we cannot explain everything about Christianity, should we discard nature because we cannot explain everything about nature? Should we deny the reality of nature because we cannot explain everything about nature? It doesn't make any meaning. So, this was how Butler collapsed the argument for reason and logic in terms of the sovereignty of reason. I'm saying sovereignty to suggest that reason was now like the new idol. Use your brain was now replacement for depend on God's grace. Butler discarded the argument and it collapsed in England. However, beyond England and beyond France, there was also another issue that was raging in Germany during the same time of the Age of Enlightenment. Are we still together? Now, what we are going to talk about in Germany is very linked to Blaise Pascal, who is the inventor of the calculator, and the, discover, the one who discovered scientific concepts such as atmospheric pressure, and a movement called Pietism, that's P-I-E-T-I-S-M. I will link two of them together and show you how they fit in. I many of you remember the Jesuit company that I explained last week? Soldiers for Christ. Is that not so? But they were soldiers more for the Catholic Church and the Pope than the way for Christ. One of their extreme practices was to practice what I call technical sin. 
A technical sin is like a white lie or a justifiable murder. For instance, if I kill somebody because the person was coming, was insulting the Pope, the Jesuit with people like that, they would commit a crime and claim that just because they did it with an intention to be submissive to church authority, that crime was not actually a crime. And they were using the term grace because remember that the Catholic Church were very loud on concepts such as grace, original sin, they were very loud. But they preached that one of the ways you can access grace was to be loyal to the papal authority. If you get baptized under them, if you obey them, grace will now pay for some of your sins and deliver you from purgatory and all of that. So the Jesuit movement were like that. But another movement came about, these guys were called the Jansanists. Jansanists. Emma Benu. We don't have to write it down, but just note them down. And they began to resist the Jesuit movement. They began to explain that, yes, there is the grace of God because all men are naturally sinful, but then it should translate to holy living and avoidance of sin. This is how the Jansanists practice their own concept of original sin. They claim that if you claim to be a Christian and you have received the grace of God, you should not be struggling with sin. You should not be practicing evil and be saying that the grace of God waves it away. Now, when Pascal was 27 or 29, he was already a, a successful scientist. Everybody say 29. Say 29. By this time, I already invented calculator. What do you don't invent? That she say, Mommy, Mommy, you never send me pocket money. Blaise Pascal, 29, calculator that we are using in the examples, he had already invented it. <laughs> already a great in terms of science. But one day his father was sick and then he came in contact with these guys called the Jansanists who were opposers of the Jesuits. Many of the Jansanists were missionaries, but many of them were also learned people. For instance, these guys were doctors and they came to treat his father. So when they met him, they explained to him that the suffering of his father was a, it was a confirmation and an affirmation to the fact that man is inherently sinful and cannot help himself. They use sickness as a logic to explain that man would always need God's help. And that, for instance, the father is suffering from a sickness and even though they are helping him, basically that was a statement or that was a proof that man is inherently sinful and will always need the grace of God. This was how this man, Blaise Pascal, was exposed to some measure of the gospel and began to become, a, he began to practice this concept of um, Jansanism, as it were. He believed in their doctrines, he believed in their teachings, and in fact, he also began to attend their school. Um, at a point, he also was reading John chapter 17. Based on his own personal testimony, he said, as he read it, in his own words, he said, the fire appeared. What that meant was that as he was reading John 17, the scripture became real to him. It wasn't just reading book. It wasn't just reading black ink on white paper. But basically, that was also another seeming experience of his conversion. So he joined what is called the Port Royal, which was the school of the Jansists, and wrote letters against the beliefs of the Jesuits. 
Jesuits at that time were very popular among the Roman Catholic Church. The um, Jansenists were not popular too much because they did not have any government backing. The Jesuits had Roman Catholic government backing. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Jansenists were like a poor group of Christians who were just fighting without any influence or connection. But when um, Blaise Pascal became one of them, they're like, wow, Omoro has joined our church. A very smart and intelligent person has become part of us. So they began to use his intelligence to publish, write books and write letters against the beliefs of the Jesuits and the philosophers who were, of course, domiciled in France. Of course, the reaction was as predicted. The Pope condemned the books, excommunicated them, and then threatened them. But everybody, of course, was more rebellious so the papal authority are not open to anybody with a new revelation or a new truth that was not the dominant traditional belief. And that so when people read the book of Blaise Pascal concerning his arguments against the Jesuits and the philosophers. Um, unfortunately for Blaise Pascal, he died at a young age. I think it was 37. He died. And after his death, Jansenism was banned in France and then they relocated to places like Holland. However, you know, when he died, one of his attendants was checking his pocket and saw that Blaise Pascal was actually writing a wonderful book to explain the logic of Christianity. At that time, people began to suggest that Christianity and logic were opposites. Faith and reason could not be merged. We agree that dominantly what we believe in scripture is about faith. Some of the things that cannot be explained. How do you explain that a virgin conceived? Except that we can say the power of the Holy Ghost overshadow her. There's no logical, biological explanation to that. How do you explain that after three days Jesus rose from the dead? We can only say, well, he was raised according to Romans chapter 1 verse 4 by the spirit of holiness, the Holy Ghost quickened him. But then, there are many things also in the Bible that you can logically explain. You can say, ah, look at it now. Look at this, look at this, look at it. It matches, it fits, it makes sense, as it were. And that's one of the operations of the teaching ministry. To explain mysteries in languages that the regular person, the ordinary person can understand and make sense out of. That's why Jesus taught using parables. He brought mysteries of the kingdom to day-to-day examples and showed them, that, okay, based on what you can see and what you can hear, this is also how it fits into the kingdom of God. Do you understand this now? When he died, it was also discovered that he experienced a personal, more intimate conversion, which he penned down in words that were very interesting. For instance, he wrote joy, fire, light, love. It was a very confusing statement. That's what he just saw. He wrote a particular date and he said, joy, fire. Light and love from 2 a.m. to 3 p.m., something like that. So, the experience actually was so indescribable that a brilliant man as Blaise Pascal could not explain how he felt. So, all he wrote was joy, love, light, and fire from 3 a.m. to 3 p.m. Now, these are intelligent scientists. And so, when they read that in his pocket, they became like, wow, this experience must have been very deep. I'm saying all of this. To let you understand the concept of pietism, which we are soon going to consider. Now, so Jainism was 
Jansenism was banned in France. They relocated to places like England. In Germany, what had become the real religion or the dominant religion was what I call or what is called Protestant scholatism. What is Protestant scholatism? It is religion according to letters. It is a religion that the sermon is now like a lecture. How many of you have been to that kind of service, in that kind of a church service? Where the, the someone is like a lecture. Somebody is just reading something. He's just talking. He's just talking. It's not, there's no life. There's no spirit to it. What he's saying is true, but Okonkawe, you know, it's like the preacher now becomes a lecturer. <laughs> you understand? That kind of a thing. That was the dominant because after Martin Luther's Reformation and Lutheran movement in Germany, um, everything collapsed and so people became more academic than spiritual. Now, the concept of Christianity was now just about books. The school was more influential in biblical interpretation than the Holy Spirit and than the church. And so that was the trending faith at that time or trending religion. Protestant scholatism. It was all about intellectual reasoning. Let me say there are many Protestant scholars or Christocentric scholars in today's generation. But I want to hear them talk. You just see that they are just quoting scripture, but there's nothing that is life living. Quickening. They just it's just about academic academic dissertation. I said, wow. They just they just talk about it, but they just not like they just say if this is this, then that is that. Adding one plus one to form doctrine. Are we still together? And that's why you see, you, you must be very very careful. For instance, the concept of grace. Somebody quotes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And he says we have eternal life. It is true. The word eternal, for instance, means um, unending. Is that not so? Yes, Everlasting means unending. Is that not so? Yes, yeah. We can become academic with it and begin to claim that uh, no matter what you do, you cannot lose salvation because eternal life. That's not a right implication to this statement because I will tell you that, for instance, the phrase, I have loved an everlasting love, was said to the children of Israel. It was not even said to New Testament believers. It was the children of Israel. That phrase kept re-echoing to them, to the prophet, everlasting love, everlasting love. However, did Israel break the covenant of God? Yes. When they broke the covenant, was there a repercussion? Yes. So, you can become very academic in your, you hear Christian words and you just limit it to academic interpretation. Mm -mm. It's not like that though. Are you listening to me? Of course, we don't believe here in uh, temporal salvation where somebody becomes saved and every time he sins, he loses his salvation. That's not what we believe. No. But to now begin to stretch that even if somebody rejects the authority of Christ, Things like apostasy is not possible. You can never fall away. It's called eternal life. Everlasting life. It's a life you can never lose. <laughs> uh, you are a grammarian. You are not a Christian. This thing is beyond grammar and English. By the time we explain the implications of truth, it carries more weight than all these analysis. Are you understand what I'm saying now? But that was the idea of a Protestant scholastism. Belief was just about books. It was not about the heart. It was not about the soul. And now, um, well, the concept of pageism, now, I don't want to give you all the details about how it arose, but Blaise Pascal's personal experience was very um, pivotal to so people embracing the concept of 
Pantheism. Now, the Pantheists began to rise and break away from Protestant scholarism. Their main emphasis was personal faith with personal heart experience. They were the first people to use the concept or the statement, born again. So the pages that started using that statement. They believe that salvation is not just about believing something that is in a book. That is a personal experience. So when they ask, are you born again? They are not just saying, do you believe that Jesus died? They are saying, come, have you come into the family of God? Do you have any experience that are found? And today there are many pages who are extreme, who believe that if you don't remember the date you got saved. I was born again in 2001, September 4. If you don't believe that, if you don't have any particular day like that, your salvation is not genuine. It's common salvation. Go and become born again again. In those days, patriotism was a very new theory. But they believed the personal conviction, personal experience. They were the first ones to use that phrase, born again. And they also encouraged Bible study. They also encouraged music and hymn writing in church. Of course, Martin Luther was a great fan of that. But then, at the point, it was, not long, it was no longer um, a trending thing. But the patriots began to push it. They encouraged music. One of the reasons they encouraged music was because at this point, in the age of enlightenment, everything was about logic and reason. There was a suppression on emotion when it came to spirituality. Are we still together? If somebody lifts up their hands and they begin to cry in worship, the age of enlightenment teachers will say, Why are you crying? How does it make a sense that you are crying? And so, it was a very strong influence at that time. But the painters began to facilitate and encourage emotional expressions. The painters were very crucial to some of the things we discuss in church history three. People like John Wesley, who were revivalists. People like George Whitfield, who when they preach, people will cry and shake. Things like falling out their anointing by the Quakers. They were traced to the Pietist versions of Christianity. They believe that salvation is a personal experience. It's not just what you believe in a book. Are we still together? They were also great missionaries. Many of the missionary activities in England, United States, and Africa were powered by Pietists. So that was how Pietism defeated Protestant scholarism. That was a rigid form of teaching and academic doctrine in Germany. So we've considered what happened in England, we've considered what happened in France, we've considered what happened in Germany. There's one more thing I want us to consider before we close. It is the concept of biblical criticism. Everybody say biblical criticism. Of course, in the age of enlightenment, people began to challenge the authority of scriptures. How are we sure that what the Bible is actually true? One of the reasons people began to challenge and rebel against the authority of scriptures was because of the way the politicians used scriptures to manipulate people. I told you that many people quoted Romans 13, 1 to explain how submission to political authority is compulsory even for those who claim to be Christians. However, there is a statement that I want to use to usher in this conversation. There was a king who began to force people in his environment to be Roman Catholics. He began to force them to be Roman Catholics. 
And he did not have a logical explanation on what he was doing. He was only forcing people based on his crave for control and power and influence. Are we still together? Are we still together? But he asked his pastor, who is of course a Roman Catholic, is there any Bible verse you can give me to support this issue of forcing people to become Christians? If you don't if you don't get converted, we'll cut off your head. What do you want? Will you be baptized in blood or be baptized in water? Which one do you want? So this man gave him Luke 14, 23. He said, ah, it's biblical. That statement is, compel them to come. I many of you remember that parable? Where Jesus said, the man organized the party, and then <laughs> the people that were invited did not come. So he turns around and says, come, compel them to come. So this pastor said, it's in the Bible. You can compel people by sword to come to the Christian faith. Now, you may say, uh-uh, but many people today are still using scriptures to dupe people. You must not come to God empty and uh, I will not give God anything that does not cost me anything. Those are manipulating scriptures. That's not what the Bible really teaches in that direction now. Now, say if you give, if, if you give God, He must pain you. If I'm not paying you, I'm not giving God. <laughs> what kind of karma? And yeah, many people, you see, but that's why explaining the Bible is the answer to Bible criticism. The way many people preach the Bible, actually, the Bible deserves criticisms. Because the way people preach it, is that what the Bible meant? What the Bible said, compared to God. Because you put sword on the head and say, Jesus or your life. Excuse me. You know. So this man gave that um, scripture. And the Bible from that time or even throughout that time was used by kings to enforce their rule. But people began to criticize the scriptures on this basis. However, there was a great debate between Richard Simon and John Le John Leclerc. It's French, Richard Simon. I think it's German, Richard Simon versus John Leclerc. It was called a great Bible debate, which actually seemingly pioneered the concept of Bible criticism. This debate lasted for years, so it was not just one debate. So. They were often debated by letters. So I'll write letter, I'll write back to you. I say, we okay. Are you trying to say that? Ah, it was when I say debate, I'm not talking about uh, a credit timekeeper, my code debate. <laughs> I'm talking about brutal letters. You write and write back, so it was like that for years or months. That was how this debate unfolded. But then, as we began to read the letter, we began to say, hmm, this Bible said, make with the examiner more, true, true. But these guys, they talk, you know, and all that. Richard Simon is referred to as the father of biblical criticism. You can Google him and research on him and read some of his works. Um, but let me read a few things or a few people that were very... Um, now, the, the, the dominant concept about biblical criticism was that it was marred by errors and that there were errors in scriptures, and that it was not entirely to be applicable or applied in things like politics, science, philosophy, ethics, and the like. So the people began to say, listen, you cannot be quoting scriptures to apply it in politics and governmental rule. That was the major basis of the biblical criticism. Are we still together? They also claimed that some of the portions of the scriptures were not inspired. That is, it was not God that said it. It was not the word of God. And all of that. But let me mention about three or four guys that were very instrumental to this concept of biblical criticism and tell you 
in summary what they believed. Richard Simon, which I said was like the father of Bible criticism, he suggested that. Okay, let's start from Benedict Spinoza. Yeah, he's also called a co-father of Bible criticism. As a youth, this man was a troublesome man from a youth. They pursued him from the synagogue because he was always arguing with the doctors of law, teachers of the law. They, they, they banned him from attending synagogue from a, from a little child or from a young man. He attacked the doctrine of biblical infallibility. Biblical infallibility suggests that there is no error in the Bible. The Bible, the scripture cannot be broken. What the Bible says is always true. So he was saying, Laila, the Bible has some places that are not true. He also argued that the Bible was used by political figures to manipulate and control people. That means the Bible itself was not entirely a good book. He suggested, this man Spinoza, Benedict Spinoza, suggested that logic and reason has greater authority than Bible. Use your sense. Instead of reading Bible, use your brain. It's not everything you should look for in the Bible or check in the Bible. Use your brain. Okay, it was all part of the Age of Enlightenment um, doctrine, as it were. He said that Moses did not write all of the Pentateuch. You know what is called the Pentateuch? The first five books of Scripture. Can you mention them? Uh-huh. When was Moses born? Which book recorded Moses' birth? So one of the arguments was that how does a man write Genesis when he was born in Exodus? And you see, these are arguments you cannot wave aside and say, just believe. <laughs> you must explain it. <laughs> Your child will ask you, say, Mommy, Mommy, I just read Exodus chapter 3 now. I read Exodus chapter 2 and chapter 1 yesterday. And I discovered that Exodus recorded the birth of Moses. But you told me that uh, Moses wrote Genesis. Hey, you cannot now say, Perez, don't worry, just have faith. You must explain the If not, Perez will go and Google it. And what he will read is the Bible has come. <laughs> so you must explain thoroughly. The other controversy included some of the statements, for instance, in some of the books that was acclaimed to the pen of Moses. Numbers 12.30. Numbers 12.30, for instance. Can we have that on the screen? Numbers 12.30. Benedict Spinoza. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Which book is this? Who wrote Numbers? So imagine you write a book. In the book, you now say, now, Judah Lorobaye was a very humble, meek man. Papa, no more you go blow your trumpet now. <laughs> How you go write with the praise yourself? So, Spinoza began to say, no be Moses write this book. You make no decision. No be Moses write this book. <laughs> and once again, if your child asks you, what would you say? Don't believe. The word of God is true. <laughs> you guys explain now. Actually, there are forms of poetry or forms of writing that can permit or that can allow a man to write in the third person. Yeah, it is possible. And there are many books like that where a man can write a biography about himself and then he's talking about himself as if he's talking about another person. That's a form of poetry. So, another scripture, Deuteronomy 34, 5 to 8. Deuteronomy 34, 5 to 8. I hope it's a scripture. Okay. So, Moses is someone of the Lord died. Who wrote this book? <laughs> Who wrote this book? 
can a man die and be rising from his death? Then the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Imagine for second that he can't be right from, from the ground. Where they right? So people can say, Are you sure it was Moses that wrote? This was one of the strong arguments of Benedict Spinoza. Now, to explain this, let us clearly establish that although Moses wrote the book, it was possible that the latter part of the book were written by Joshua. It was, it was possible. That does not take away the fact that Moses wrote the genome. Do you understand what we are saying? So, these are explanations to some of this. Look, but these things in those days were a hot argument. Ah, not like you. Oh, it is commons. Person read book, you can't talk when he die. Ah, person go read book, talk when he die. Which kind did you be that? Alright, alright, alright. Now, that's that about Spinoza and what he thought. Spinoza also believed that miracles do not happen. There's nothing like miracle. And the Red Sea was parted. Uh, there's a resurrection from the dead. Nothing like that happened. He believed that the law of nature could not be broken. And so there was nothing like miracles. There's also a man called Richard Simon, like I talked about earlier. He indicated that Israel had public scribes who kept biblical books. These scribes were inspired of God and wrote passages in the Pentateuch, not Moses. Richard Simon believed that it was not Moses that wrote all these things, that it was some Jews who were inspired by God that documented it. And that because they were also human beings, they also had some errors in some of the things they wrote. This was the argument of Richard Simon. Are we still together? And then John Leclerc, which of course had the great debate with Richard Simon, criticized Simon's book, but he also suggested that, uh, well, he insisted that there was something like public scribes. Public scribes were, when, when um, Richard Simon talks about public scribes, he referred to teachers who kept the documents and the history of Israel. And that those teachers were the ones that were writing these things and that were called Book of Moses. And it was these teachers that were writing them. But John Leclerc um, suggested that the author of the Pentateuch lived at a much later date than Moses. Moses was not the one that wrote these books, but that the real author lived maybe back in the days of Genesis or even before Genesis. But he also thought that the only inspired parts of scriptures were passages by the prophets, people like Jeremiah and Isaiah, and those that were the exact words of Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every other one. Now just human words, Jerry whether they call inspired book. That's the argument of John Leclerc. Do you understand that? Well, in all of this, at the time of the age of enlightenment or the age of reason, the Bible remained the most popular book, the most read book, the most translated book, the most published book. And while many secular authors claim that the age of enlightenment brought Christianity to a halt, actually, it was the reverse. Because the more people studied scriptures or even criticized scriptures, the more they were now logical answers to many of the things that the Christian faith stood for. And of course, this eventually led to what we consider in subsequent teachings the age of revival. Now, the age of revival was very crucial or was premised on the age of enlightenment because at the age of enlightenment, Christianity was becoming a little bit more logical than supernatural. So many of the converts at that time, people like Blaise Pascal, could only get saved by supernatural experiences. Since they could not explain, we just say fire, light, joy, love. 
That's what they could see. But they were having supernatural experiences. You know, they did not really call it, like we call it, charismatic or Pentecostal. But revival had to, had to happen because the church was becoming too logical, too reasonable. Many people will begin to believe it is like maybe there are no miracles. Maybe. So God had to send supernatural harvesting to affirm that the Bible is true. All these things in the Bible can actually also happen in your generation. That is that about church history part two and the fifth says. Is there a question? We trust that you've been blessed by this teaching. We look forward to receiving your testimonies, prayer requests, and feedbacks. You can send us a mail at judamaye at yahoo.com. That is J-U-D-A-H-M-A-Y-E at yahoo.com. Till next time, remain in the consciousness of God's word and power. Thank you.